1: Okay, right now, I could be overwhelmed with the fear of how am I going to do it? How am I going to plunge the knife into my son, cut his throat, burn him up? How am I going to do that? No, I'm not going to think about that. Right now, I need a knife. I got to go get a knife. Right now, I need wood. I got to go get wood. Right now, I need to cut wood. I'll cut the wood. See, there's a marvelous teaching for us in verse 3, and it's showing us what to do when we in our lives get this shocking news where we want to say, oh no, you know, what are you supposed to do when you get the news? You got cancer. Yeah. Or you get the news, this, the loved one has, is sick, he's going to die, or he's died. What are you supposed to do? Verse 3 shows us what to do stay the course, do what needs to be done. Don't worry about the future. The Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew 6 34, He says, Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient. He said, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And so what he's saying in Matthew 6:34, he says, take therefore no thought for tomorrow. Don't worry or be anxious about tomorrow. For the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Tomorrow will have its own set. And he's going to say, I guarantee you, <laughs> it'll have its own set of worries and anxieties. He said, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. See, we've got to focus on that word sufficient. Think about that word sufficient. Think of a Jewish mother. And the Jewish mother says, sufficient. Enough already. (laughs) I say, what? Today's troubles and anxieties are not sufficient for you? What's the matter with you? You have to go and borrow some of tomorrow's anxieties and worries because you don't have enough for today? It's enough for you. Sufficient already. So this is what we see Abraham doing. Just what he needed to do for the day. I need a donkey. I go get a donkey. I need a saddle. I go get saddle. I need a saddle donkey. I go saddle. I need two young men. I'm going to go get two young men. I need a knife. I'm going to get a knife. I need wood. I need a fire. I need a cut. That's what I'm going to do. I need Isaac. I'm going to go get Isaac. And so, verse 3 is really telling us what Abraham did on day one. And he had enough to do on day one. And at the end of day one, as he had already set off, he was an exhausted man. And so, he had a good sleep, he was tired. And that's a picture for us of how we're to cope with anxiety and stress. See, the devil, he's the master at bringing us on the rides where the stress and anxiety increase. He takes us, you know what the devil's place is at Disneyland? Tomorrowland. <laughs> you know? He wants to take us on the rides in Tomorrowland. You know? Remember I told you about John's little five-year-old Chloe granddaughter? And how she will not ride on any rides in Disneyland that she cannot see where it goes. You know, like Peter Pan ride and Alice in Wonderland ride. Those should all be banned. I don't know why they ever did those things. You know, they start off where you go into a dark cave. You know, she won't do it. You know, I'm with Chloe. We need to be with Chloe. I don't like those rides. No, because that's what the devil wants to do. He wants to take us into the tomorrow land of these rides that start off with the dark caves. So what we see Abraham doing in verse 3 is he says, no, I'm going to stay in today land. I'm not going to tomorrow land. I'm in today land. And that's important for us. That's important because Abraham is saying, I'm not going on an Alice in Wonderland ride. I'm not going on any Peter Pan rides in tomorrow land. Because like Chloe, Abraham is staying in today land, and he's only going on the rides that he can see what he's got right in front of him. And when we're under a lot of stress and anxiety, God doesn't want us to let the devil take us on these rides in tomorrow land. He doesn't want that. Because God's tomorrow land is different from our tomorrow land. And that's what he said in Jeremiah 33, when he said, Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. You have no idea. Which thou knowest not. See, that last phrase, you know, which thou knowest not, that's God saying your tomorrow land is not my tomorrow land. See? So don't let the devil take you on these rides of tomorrow land because that's not my tomorrow land. See, God's tomorrow land is expressed in Ephesians 3.20 where he says, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think or expect according to the power that worketh in us. See, God's tomorrow land is exceedingly abundant above all that we can ask or think. See, when, And when we're in trouble, we have prayer to the God who has a different tomorrow land because God answers prayer. That's what Moses was trying to tell, to to make clear to the Jewish people about what their greatness really was. He says, look, your greatness is not in yourself. Your greatness is in the proximity of God to you. Your greatness is in the fact that God answers your prayers. That's what he said in Deuteronomy 4, 7, when he said, What nation is there so great? Who hath God so nigh unto them? as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for. You know, Deuteronomy 4, 7. And this is how Abraham coped, you know, one day at a time, resisting letting his mind run into the future. Abraham decided, I'm going to obey God. This was Abraham's decision. I'm going to obey God. And so he set out, but he did it one day at a time. And if you want to write down a title over verse 3, you can write down one day at a time because that was day one for Abraham. But something else we want to see in verse 3. It says here in verse 3, but Abraham rose up early in the morning and did all those things. So the first part of this verse shows us the heart of Abraham. Can you imagine this for Abraham? Talk about being blindsided. He has no clue that this is coming. There has been no previous indication from God that God was going to command Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. This just hit him blind. And up until this point in all of human history, God has never asked anyone to offer a human sacrifice. And up until this point in human history, God has never asked a father to kill his son. This was totally unprecedented. And so God has not prepared Abraham for this shock of verse 2 of being asked to offer Isaac as a human sacrifice. And when we consider this and realize that one day when God and Abraham were in fellowship together, God springs this on Abraham, this shocking instruction, oh, by the way, I want you to sacrifice your son. That's enough to make your heart stop. It's a shock. It's unprecedented. It's never been heard of before. Human sacrifice, father offering his son. So what makes verse 3 so impactful And what's so so astounding about verse 3 is what is not there. It's what we don't read. See, in verse 3, we don't read that Abraham had Lot's response. When Lot was commanded to flee Sodom and Gomorrah to the mountains, and when he said, you remember in Genesis 19, 18, Oh, not so, my Lord. Lot was shocked at the Lord's command to don't live in the city, go live in the mountain. He said, Oh, no. Oh. He said, Oh. Oh, no. Not so, my Lord. Fleet of the mountains, oh no, that's a shocking command. And in verse three, we don't read anything like that from Abraham. Abraham didn't have Peter's same response when the Lord commanded Peter, Peter, eat the ham, eat the pork, <laughs> eat the lobster, eat the crab, eat the seafood. And in Acts 118, Peter says, But I said, Not so, my Lord, for nothing common or unclean hath at any time entered my mouth, not this mouth of mine. No. Peter was shocked at the Lord's commandment. You want me to eat pork, seafood? Not so, my Lord. That's unclean. Eat unclean pork and seafood? Not so. That's a shocking commandment. That's a shocking command. Just look at this mouth of mine, Lord. Nothing common or unclean hasn't gone in. You want to ruin my record? How much less shocking are the commands to don't live in the city, go to the mountains and live, and eat the unclean pork and the seafood, than to Abraham? Offer your son as a burnt offering, and with those commands, we saw what these verses tell us: are the resistance verses against God in Genesis nineteen eighteen and Peter in Acts 1:11:8. See those commands? We have the complaining and the arguing to God in those verses: Genesis nineteen eighteen and Acts eleven eight. Those are complaining verses; those are arguing verses, and that's what makes Genesis twenty two three the verse we're studying here so remarkable because there's no resistance on Abraham's part. It's so remarkable, verse 3. There's no complaining. There's no arguing. Jews are very good at complaining. They're very good at it. I told you, I went to my Dr. Goldberg, and he listened to my heart, and he said, oh, you have a murmur. I said, that's okay. My people are known for that. <laughs> but not Abraham. He's not murmuring. He's not complaining. He's not arguing. And Abraham doesn't say, oh, not so, my Lord. Not Isaac as an offering. He's not being commanded to make this terrible sacrifice of not living in the city, but instead live in a mountain. And Abraham's being commanded to make the sacrifice of his son as a burnt offering. And in verse 3, he's not complaining. He's not arguing. He's not being commanded to make the sacrifice to eat a ham sandwich and a lobster. Such a sacrifice. But he's being commanded to make the sacrifice of the son as a burnt offering. And in verse 3, he's not complaining or arguing. See, paralleling the absence of of Abraham's complaining and arguing in verse 3, with Lot's and Peter's complaining and arguing in Genesis 19, 19, and, and Acts eleven eight, 8, it drives us to write down another title over verse 3. And the title is, Abraham did not complain or arguing. What am I complaining and arguing about? Having to sacrifice his son as a burnt offering didn't make Abraham complain and argue. And what do you and I have to do that makes us complain and argue to God? See, none of us have been asked to sacrifice our son, our child, as a burnt offering. So we have nothing to complain or argue to God about. So it's a real challenge for us, verse 3, to not complain and argue with God about what he wants us to do. And we look at verse 3, and we see that it doesn't say anything at all. That's the astounding part about verse 3. There's no mention of the not so. I've waited a hundred years for the son. You had me give up my other son, Ishmael. You can't take my only son who I love, you can't take them away from me. You can't have me sacrifice my son as a burnt offering. That's not right. It's not fair. Ask me for animals, I'll give you a thousand. Sacrifice them. Not my son. That's over the top. Walking with you only goes so far, but sacrificing my son, that's too far. See, he's not saying any of that. We don't read any of that. To the contrary, verse 3 starts off, fine. Abraham rose up early in the morning. We could rewrite, we could put something in front of verse 3. Instead of complaining and arguing, Abraham rose up early in the morning. (laughs) Abraham rose up early in the morning and got right to work to prepare to sacrifice his son as a burnt offering. So the fact that verse 3, specifically after Abraham was commanded to sacrifice his son, that he didn't even sleep in that morning. He says, you know, this is a good morning to sleep in. I could use the extra rest. A little stressful yesterday. He doesn't do that. Right away he's up early in the morning. And it shows how eager Abraham is and engaged he is to do the will of God. Even if it meant to sacrifice his son, that's the heart of Abraham. That's the heart of Abraham. That's the heart that God loved in Abraham. And all does not mean that Abraham was some insensitive person that had no feelings. He was deeply troubled. You bet. He was deeply distressed. We had already seen this in the previous chapter, uh, how deeply in troubled Abraham was when God had asked him, just go ahead and do everything that Sarah is demanding you to do to send your son and Hagar into the desert of death. When we read that in Genesis 21, 11, 13, it says the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. How much more grievous this is because God's asking him, you do the killing and the burning. And God said unto Abraham, let it not be grievous, In thy sight, because of the lad, and because of thy bondwoman. And all that Sarah had said unto thee, hearken unto her voice. He says, She said, just do everything she said, for in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And also the bondwoman, and I'll make a nation. Bondwoman, I'll make a nation because he's thy seed. But as soon as Abraham knew that God wanted him to do what Sarah had demanded, we read the exact same thing. As we saw here in, saw in verse 3, no complaining, no arguing. As a matter of fact, it's exactly the same words in Genesis 21:14. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and took bread and a bottle of water, gave it unto Hagar, putting it on her shoulder and the child, and sent her away, and she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Bathsheba. So just as in verse 3 we saw Abraham did not go into the Alice in Wonderland and the Peterland rides into the dark cave of the future, he stayed in today land, and just like we saw in verse 3, Abraham is there, and he's got his checklist there in the previous chapter. Get Hagar and Ishmael. Check. Get bread. Check. Give bread to Hagar. Check. Give the bottle of water. Put it on her shoulder. Check. See? Get the bottle. Oh, that's See, Send them away. Check. And again, Genesis 21, 14 shows us that Abraham kept from going crazy from what was going to happen in the future to Hagar and his son because he stayed focused on what he had to do immediately to obey God. See, that's so important. And this is exactly what the prophet Ezekiel did during a very disturbing time in Ezekiel's life. This was maybe the most disturbing time in Ezekiel's life. It was so disturbing that this time actually resulted in the death of his wife. And this was a very disturbing time for Ezekiel when his wife was fighting for her life. And during this time, when his wife was fighting for her life, God commanded Ezekiel to, don't neglect your role as a prophet. Do your role as a prophet and speak to the Jewish people. And he said, in the morning. God said that way. He said, you speak to the Jewish people in the morning. So Ezekiel is faced with the dilemma of what to do. Morning comes. Ezekiel doesn't know. He doesn't know if his wife's going to die while he's out speaking to the people. The morning has come. It looks like his wife's going to die in the morning. He doesn't know. The morning's come. She's laying on her deathbed. She's fighting for her life. And Ezekiel saw his wife struggling for her life. And his heart's broken. He looks. He remembers when they were young together. Like it says in Proverbs, in Proverbs 5.18, rejoice, he says, with the wife of thy youth. And that's Ezekiel's wife of his youth right there. So the morning approaches, and Ezekiel becomes more and more torn. And would he spend the morning with his wife, the wife of his youth, who's dying on her bed? Or would Ezekiel do as God commanded him and speak to the Jewish people as a prophet that morning? See, would Ezekiel put God on hold and said, oh, You know, I got something a little bit more important right now. My wife's dying. I'll come back to you. You know, just hold that command, God. Would he do that? and spend the time with his wife? Or would Ezekiel do as God commanded him that morning, go speak to the people? There's a great struggle for Ezekiel. And what did Ezekiel decide to do? You turn to it, Ezekiel 24, 18. Ezekiel writes down for us in Ezekiel twenty four eighteen what I decided to do when I was in that dilemma. What I decided. So, he says, I spake unto the people in the morning. I spake unto the people in the morning. Then he wrote, and it even my wife died. And then he goes on, one more statement, and I did in the morning as I was commanded. That's important. I did in the morning as I was commanded. See, in writing to us, Ezekiel, when he was writing to us his decision, he's emphasizing the times of the day. See, in verse 18, he says, Ezekiel 24, 18, he says, so I spake unto the people in the morning, and at even my wife died, and I did in the morning as I was commanded. See, by emphasizing to us at even, and by emphasizing to us twice in the morning when he obeyed God, he's telling us, Ezekiel is telling us, says, look, when the morning came, there's something I knew and something I didn't know. What did I know? God wanted me to go talk to the people. What did I not know? If my wife would live through the morning. So he says, I knew that I was being commanded by God. Look, you're my prophet. You go speak to the Jewish people. So when the morning come, Ezekiel's saying, I had no idea if my wife was going to live or die in the morning. For all he knew, my wife's going to die in the morning. My wife's going to die while I'm out there preaching. So when that morning came, Ezekiel was faced with this great decision of what to do in the morning. That morning, as Ezekiel looked at his wife dying and looked at the command of God to go that morning and preach, and he says, I want you to tell you what I did. So he says, so I spake unto the people in the morning. And so in this first part of Ezekiel 24, 18, Ezekiel is saying what he decided to do. He's saying, I considered my wife dying on her bed, and I considered God's command for me to preach, and I made my decision. I went and spoke to the people in the morning. Now, Ezekiel could have added, and when I left home to speak to the people in the morning, I had no idea if that would be the last time I'd see her alive or not. I had no idea when I came back if my wife would be alive when I came back from preaching to the people. But then the next part of Ezekiel twenty four eighteen, Ezekiel says, at even my wife died. So what is Ezekiel saying there? When I left home to preach to the people in the morning, I had no idea if my wife would live or when I came back, but I decided to obey God. And what do you know? It's so amazing. My wife didn't die that morning. God kept her alive until the evening. God kept my wife alive all throughout the morning while I was doing what God commanded me to do, which was to preach to the Jewish people so that when I got home from preaching, my wife was still alive. That's what he's saying. As a matter of fact, when I got home, I got to sit with my wife until the even when she died. Now, that's the tender mercy of God. That's the mercy of God, to keep my life alive in the morning while I was obeying God's commandment to preach so I could be with her. We had a wonderful time together. And then she died. God was, in essence, saying here, and Ezekiel is saying to us, if you would step out, he says, can I give some advice, people, this morning, Ezekiel would say. God is really saying, you take care of my work. God said to me, you take care of my work, I'll take care of your wife. Kept her alive. And then again, emphasizing this, the timing, he says, so I spake unto the people in the morning, and even my wife died, and I did in the morning, as I was commanded. And what he's saying that, he's saying, Isn't that amazing? Even my wife died and I did in the morning as I was commanded. He's saying, I, I did as I was commanded. That was his victory statement. That was Ezekiel's victory statement. I did as I was commanded, as a victory. That morning when Ezekiel looked at his wife dying, it was like the Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, and that morning Ezekiel had his own Luke twenty-two, forty-two verse where the Lord Jesus Christ said, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And Ezekiel was saying, if thou be willing, let me spend this morning with my dying wife. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And so when Ezekiel said that he was saying, so I spake unto the people in the morning, in the morning as I did as I was commanded, he's saying there, I'm so glad now that I didn't argue with or complain to God or resist God or put God's command off because of my sick wife. I'm so glad now that I did speak to the people in the morning. I'm so glad now that I didn't say to God, I'm sorry, God, but my wife comes first. My wife's more important than your command because Ezekiel would say to us, you know, I only had one chance. I only had one opportunity to show God, to demonstrate. And that's what God said to Abraham. He said, now I see, now I perceive that you're a God-fearer. He said, I only had one chance here, and this was the chance to show that you were more important than my wife, and I did as I was commanded. He said, I only had one opportunity to life, and I did it. I'm so glad I did it. So the words in verse 3, for Abraham rose up early in the morning, it's the same message. Abraham decided to obey God over his son's life. He had only one opportunity to do this, and he was saying, God, you're more important than Isaac. And Abraham said, I'm so happy I chose God over my son Isaac. And Abraham is so happy that Moses took the time to write it down in Genesis 22. So Abraham could say, that's my victory chapter. Right there, verse 20, chapter 22. So between verses 2 and 3, Abraham has his Luke twenty-two forty-two Garden of Gethsemane verse. Abraham is saying, Father, if thou be willing, let me not sacrifice Isaac. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Stephen Olford was preaching one time every night in one of his largest evangelical campaigns in the center of England. And the soccer stadium which he was preaching was packed every night. And every night he had a different soccer star <laughs> from the team on the platform there, and he gave his testimony, this, the, the team member gave his testimony of how he found the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was great success, this evangelistic campaign. And right in the middle of the week, Stephen Olford got a telegram from his mother in Cardiff, Wales in the south, and told, he says, you know, that his father, who was a retired missionary from Angola, Africa, that he was dying. So Stephen Olford immediately made plans to go to his father's bedside. But then came another telegram from his mother with the words, your father says, tell the boy not to come, keep preaching. (laughs) And Stephen Olford didn't go. And he did as his father told him. He kept preaching. And that day, before the Knights Crusade meeting, front page on the newspaper was, preacher's father dying, preacher keeps preaching. That was the front page. That was Stephen Olford's decision to keep preaching. And today, as both Stephen Olford and his father are together in heaven right now, Stephen Olford would say to his father, I'm glad I kept preaching. And the father would say to him, I'm glad I told you to keep preaching. <laughs> Last night, I'm sitting with my wife in the hospital, and she's fighting for her life with leukemia, the AML. And she's in such a state of emergency. She's so tense. She's so alert. You know, I mean, the, the, they come at four in the morning. Well, you know, you're going to die unless you get these platelets. and Now you're going to die if you don't get the transfusion. And you're going to die if you don't get the the antibiotics, and everything is just flowing into these lines, and she's in such a state, what next? So tense, that she told me yesterday, I'm in such a state of tension, I can't cry, she says, but she told me last night, go feed the sheep this morning in Sunday school, give them something new, give them something fresh. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that when you are put first, no one loses, and we thank you, Lord, for these lives of Abraham that we've been reading about here, Lord, and how And others, Lord, about when they put God first, that you took care of everything else. Thank you for Abraham. Thank you for Ezekiel. Thank you for being our Lord Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.